Hello and welcome to the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders, with candid, meaningful conversations that really get beneath the surface of issues. This show aims to inspire, inform, and deliver practical insights on the challenges facing charity leaders today, for the benefit of leaders across the sector and for those who care about the important work of charities. I'm your host, Divya O'Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity chief executive who will share with us their insights, knowledge, and expert opinion on a particular topic or area of expertise. I am delighted that my very first guest on the podcast is the lovely Gemma Peters, CEO of Blood Cancer UK. Gemma and I worked closely together when I was chief executive of Children with Cancer UK and were founding members of the Children and Young People's Cancer Coalition. So we certainly know a thing or two about cancer. In this episode, part one of our conversation, we talk about leading through the current crisis and the impact of delayed healthcare and medical research for cancer patients. We discuss the tough decisions behind redundancy consultations at Blood Cancer UK, touch upon collaboration in the charity sector, and even outline a proposal for setting up a charity mergers and acquisitions hub. Gemma reflects on what she has learnt as a leader and on decision-making with imperfect data. She also shares how being open and vulnerable during this time has actually helped bring her closer to her team and made them collectively more effective. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Gemma. Welcome to the show. Hi, Divya. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, I just wanted to say before we get started that I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on as my very first guest on the very first episode of the Charity CEO podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, No, it's a pleasure. I'm very excited too. A a lot to live up to if I'm the first one. (laughs) I'm sure you're going to be brilliant. So the structure of the show is that we kick off with an icebreaker round, which is just 60 seconds of some lighthearted personal questions, the intention of which is for our listeners to get to know you a little bit and for us to have uh, a little bit of fun. So Gemma, are you ready? I think so. Excellent. So I'm just going to set our 60 second timer here and we can get started. What was your first job? Uh, working in an Italian shoe shop in the town where I grew up and it was, I think, 100% commission based, but it turned out I was quite good at it. So um, yeah, a lot I, of shoes. I feel like I lucked it. Although actually, do you need to count the fact that I made the cricket tees before that? Because I think I did get paid for that. So really, I would say cricket tees followed by a uh, shoe shop. Okay. So as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A news reporter or a hairdresser. Wow. <laughs> I think this, this is going to lend to the next question. If you were a Spice Girl, which one would you be and why? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that I would like to be Scary Spice. I'm not sure how scary I really am. I'm not sure if I get to, I get to do that. I'm definitely not sporty or baby. I don't think I'm very posh. Who else is left of here? Have I missed one? <laughs> well, that's the timer. I think uh, Ginger Spice is the last one. Oh, yeah, with the Union Jack dress. Yeah, you know, maybe. <laughs> Okay, so which one did you go for then? Because you went through all, oh, all five oh, of them. Oh, I see. I think, I think scary. Okay, excellent. Uh, so yeah, that is the end of the icebreaker round. Although there is a bonus question that I am going to ask you. If you could interview anybody in the world, 
dead or alive and you had oh one goodness. question to ask them what one question would you like to ask them oh my goodness Davia that is such a there are so many people that I would like to and dead or alive that's like an unlimited amount so I think there are there are lots of women in history whose voices we haven't heard who we don't understand because they just weren't written about in the same way so I think I would think about someone who we who other people have written their story and they haven't had a chance to tell it themselves I think so I'm quite interested in like people who were in for instance in court like so like in Henry VIII's courts and the women in in those places who actually were a massive part of court life but their stories very very rarely get told so I think I would dig around I might have to come back to you with a name but I dig around and find someone who was at important moments in our history a woman at important moments in our history who we just have no record of and haven't heard anything from wow I love that that is that's great so before we get stuck into our main discussion, I wanted to wish you congratulations because I see that the Charity Times Award nominations uh. are out for 2020 and that Blood Cancer UK has received a whole host of nominations. Nominated. I know, it's nice, isn't it? It's, it's nice brilliant. timing, actually. Bit of a boost when things are difficult. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. Um, you've been nominated for Large Charity of the Year, you personally for Charity Leader of the Year. Well done. And the Thank nominations you. for your fundraising team, your change team. So yes, that it must be great. I'm really recognized. pleased with the team, actually. We've been on a, as you know, Divya, we've been on a big old journey in these last few years. And pre-coronavirus, it really felt like we were in an excellent place. And I'm glad that um, I'm really, I'm really pleased for the team. They've worked so hard that there's, that even in the nomination, whatever happens, I, I haven't properly looked at the shortlist yet, yet, but I'm sure there are other brilliant organisations nominated too. But just even to be on the shortlist is a real boost for everyone. So I'm really pleased. Well done. So on that note, tell us more about Blood Cancer UK and what you guys do. So Blood Cancer UK has been around for 60 years. We're set up in 1960 and we're a charity that works in blood cancer. So our mission is to beat blood cancer, that is leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma. Um, there are 130-ish types of blood cancer, so there are lots to remember, but they're the three main groups. And we fund research into those cancers and we support people who are affected by those cancers. And we campaign for change on their behalf as well. So we've sort of got three elements to our mission. And as I know you know, Divya, it's you know, it's the third biggest cancer killer in the country. So it's a really important cancer to make progress because it affects two hundred and fifty thousand people. And it's the most common cancer in children and young people too. So we have a big focus on that in our work as well. But we've been around for a long time. Like lots of charities, we were set up by a family who really sadly lost their little girl to leukemia. And they, at the time, didn't understand why she got leukemia or what the treatment options were. And they decided that wasn't good enough. So they set up the first ever leukemia research laboratory, which was at Great Ormond Street. And they essentially just net connected with all these other families who were going through similar things around the country who set up different groups to raise money so when we were founded with the leukemia research fund and today we're blood cancer uk um, but with the same mission that the eastwood family started us off with and in fact sylvia gaunt who's the daughter of the parents the who set us off 
Susan's sister, um, is still really involved in the charity today. So in fact, I was talking to her last week and she says to me, she says, come on, Gemma, we've got to do this while I'm still alive. So crack on. <laughs> <laughs> so she's very involved like we've got so I haven't got you know well hopefully I have got a long time because hopefully Sylvia will be with us a long time but I definitely feel that sense of come on we've got to we've got to beat this and we've made a lot of progress but there's a way to go yes the the pressure is on uh, and not helped of course by COVID-19 and the no. pandemic and in, indeed the impact on cancer patients so NHS England released some statistics recently that showed a 60% reduction in urgent cancer referrals due to the disruption. And I know Cancer Research UK is estimating that there are over 2 million people in the UK who are awaiting cancer screening tests and treatment. Now, obviously, that is across all types of cancers. But what does all of this mean for blood cancer patients? It doesn't add up to a very happy picture for lots of reasons. So before COVID-19, we'd set an ambition to say we thought we could beat blood cancer, i.e. no one would die of it, within 30 years. And that was based on scientific progress that was being made in new treatments and our understanding of the disease and how it interacts with interacts with individual people's genetics. And I think what's happened in COVID-19 is a number of things. First of all, the science has been really disrupted. So ongoing science, uh, scientists have ended up going, you know, if they were clinical, back to the NHS, loaning equipment out to work, to do, you know, diagnosis uh, expertise has been off working on COVID-19 and moved off cancer. So labs have really slowed to a halt pretty much. So that is obviously having a big impact. And these things aren't quick to pick up. So it's not that when people start going back to the laboratory, the research will just pick up and it'll be back on a timeline. It'll take people a while to build back up all the things that they had and and not least the people. So I think that's one element where you can say that it's having a massive impact on cancer patients and their access to new treatments or the likelihood of new treatments coming. There's then the element of clinical trials. I mean, new recruitment on clinical trials stopped in March and it's being very slow to get back going. So if you're a cancer patient and your best hope is a new is a trial, it's not a good time. There aren't there aren't many trials available and we're working with others really hard to try and get those back open and running. But it's incredibly difficult with the pressure that the NHS is is under. And and then rightly, you know, you talked about their what's happened to delays in diagnosis. So screening isn't an issue really for blood cancer patients because we don't have blood cancer screening at the moment, although one of my hopes is that we will be able to develop that. But we don't have it at the moment. But what's happening is it was already one of the slowest to diagnose cancers. Lots of the messaging that's been put out for understandable reason about, you know, protect the NHS, stay away from hospital if you can, stay away from your GP if you can, has meant that lots and lots of people who otherwise we're estimating probably about 100,000 people who otherwise would have been diagnosed have not been diagnosed and we know that cancer hasn't stopped so they're they're out there those people are out there they're just not diagnosed and not being diagnosed early is a massive problem and then the other element is about people who have been diagnosed whose treatment has changed and have you know it's not all bad in some cases people's treatment they would say has changed for the better because we've got much better at delivering treatment at home. So some advances that perhaps the NHS should have made earlier 
have really been fast forwarded in in this time, whether that's about treatments that require less stay in hospital or things that can be delivered at home or consultations that can happen virtually or blood tests that can happen locally. Patients would say some of that has been positive. But equally, you know, the harrowing stories that we're hearing about people who've had appointments cancelled and scans cancelled, who when they've had them later, you know, their disease has progressed so much that their likelihood of survival is much smaller than it would have been if it had been picked up earlier. So, you know, as painful as it is to say, I think we'll see more deaths indirectly as a result of COVID through things like cancer diagnosis being delayed and treatments being changed than we will from COVID itself. And that isn't even taking into account the fact that blood cancer patients particularly are much more likely to die of COVID than anyone else. You know, it looks like if you have blood cancer and you contract COVID, you end up in hospital, but only 50% of that group survive. So it's an incredibly anxious, worrying time for the blood cancer community and for all of us who work to support that community. I, I mean, I think, I think I can pretty confidently say there hasn't been a worse time. And so the pressures on us as an organisation to do the very best we can are, are huge. Yes, I know there was a recent government report that estimated we are going to see over 200,000 deaths due to delayed healthcare. And who knows, the number could actually be a lot higher than that. You yeah. talked there about the your blood cancer community and, and people who are obviously shielding or need to shield because they're more vulnerable to COVID-19. Tell us a bit about your Save the Shielders campaign. What's been its impact? So, so there are 250,000 people with blood cancer in the UK and 200,000 of them were asked to shield. So they were in the extremely vulnerable group. So the vast majority of people with blood cancer are shielding. And obviously that means that they and their families are shielding. And, and shielding, I, you know, people know, I expect, but is a really strict, it's different to social distancing. It's a very strict set of conditions about staying inside and isolating yourself, even from your family in your home. And so... People have been doing that as a huge impact on people's mental health, but we've been supporting people in that. And then we had an announcement a few weeks ago that said shielding was going to end on the 31st of July for everyone. And this caused a great deal of concern in our community because what it meant really was that the support for people shielding was going to change and be reduced and already that group were struggling so um, for instance they were getting food parcels they're getting medicine deliveries they were able to be signed off by their employer either on furlough or with sick pay it was kind of categorized as so people were being given financial support and that although there were problems accessing some of that that really was helping people and the big concern now it stopped has been people who we hear from a lot who were at pressure to go back to work. So if you imagine the situation, if you or someone you love is perhaps has had an acute leukemia, maybe has survived that. So you feared losing that person once you faced into that and they've survived. And then this threat of coronavirus comes and you're worried again. And so you shield and you protect them. And then you're told that you can no longer shield and you and your family have to go back to work or face the financial consequences of not working. 
if you work in an environment that isn't COVID safe, that I mean, that's an impossible decision. I can't, you know, people I speak to, I can't even imagine to know what I would do in that situation, but it would be absolutely agonising. And I feel sometimes in the communication that we've had about this, everyone imagines that people have jobs like mine, where you can work from home really easily. Well, most people don't have office jobs. You know, people who I've spoken to, driving instructors, nurses, people who work in care homes, people who go in and, you know, if you've got a rat problem, one of the people I spoke to who does pest control goes into people's homes for his job. That's his job. That can't ever be COVID safe. And he can't get sick pay. And he can't go back to work without being scared. And he wasn't furloughed and he can't now be added to the furlough scheme. So we've left this relatively small group, working age people whose jobs can't be made COVID secure, who have blood cancer in an incredibly vulnerable and difficult position. And that's just not fair and, and it's not right. And so the Save Our Shielders campaign has been about drawing attention to that group and asking for support. And it's picking up quite a lot of momentum. We've had a, a lot of good media support, but also support in Parliament. In fact, I've got a conversation later today about it. So I'm hopeful that we might be able to get something put in place to protect that group. But they were just forgotten about, I think, or, or at least they were not top of mind when the mess- everyone wanted the message to be, get back to work, you know, Super Saturday. Remember, the pubs are open, the beaches are open. Come on, everyone, we've got to get back to normal. That might be true for lots of us, but it isn't true for that group. And, you know, we've had lots of uh, clinicians, doctors, nurses, GPs saying they wouldn't advise their individual patients to go back to work. So then you're in a position where your clinical team are telling you not to go to work. Your employer, probably not unreasonably, is saying, well, either you have to come to work or I have to get someone else to do your job so I can't afford to pay you anymore. What do you do? If we come back to the science for a moment, coming from a medical research charity myself, I know that reducing research spend today has real consequences on the development and discovery of new drugs and new treatments going forward, maybe five, 10 years, or even beyond that. The Association of Medical Research Charities, the AMRC, is projecting a reduction of 310 million in medical research investment in just the next 12 months. I know at Blood Cancer UK, you recently announced that you're looking at potentially a 1.8 million reduction in research spend this year. Can you tell us more about how you see this playing out over the next few years? And I'm really interested to know if you are able to do anything to protect some of the key research and projects that you know are in the pipeline. Yeah, so you're right. It is a pretty devastating picture. So, uh, you know, it's not just my organisation that's faced with the really difficult prospect of dramatically reducing our research spend, but so is every other medical research charity in the country. And I think maybe people haven't really known how much of our medical research in this country is funded by charities. It's huge. And unfortunately, the way they're going to find out, it looks like, is because so much of it is going to stop. Um, so I think we're in we're part of the AMRC, the Association of Medical Research Charities campaign, 
to really encourage the government to step in and to perhaps match funding that charities are putting into universities to keep some of that research alive um, or to keep more of it alive. I think we've certainly taken a view, and I think other charities have too, that our existing research commitments, which span out over three or five years, depending on what the project is, we will absolutely honour and that research will continue. And then how much more we're able to start in terms of new funding will entirely be based on how quickly we can build up our, our fundraising, essentially. How, how can we invest, uh, build up our money so that we can invest? And research will always be a priority for us because, you know, it always has been. So we're in a strong enough position that, you know, this year we can still make new awards. And, we, and my expectation is we will also be able to do that next year. But the next three years will be tough and it will be far short of what I wanted it to be. So then the question for us is, how can we make sure that what we are spending has the maximum impact? And this is where I think we've got to try and you know, to use that now overused phase, build back better. But one of the things I'm really keen on is looking across the charity sector to see at how we can align research and join up the conversations about research strategy much better so that we have a much deeper understanding of what other charities are doing who fund research in the blood cancer space, whether that's Cancer Research UK or whether it's some of the other blood cancer charities or the other children's cancer research charities, to come to a shared view and understanding about what each other will be able to do and what we won't so that nothing really critical falls through the cracks if we can stop it and equally that we don't duplicate and that we don't end up wasting money when money is going to be in research money is going to be so critical so we're starting we're in the process of developing our research strategy that had started actually before COVID-19 but has continued through it and we're engaging and have done since the beginning with with all the other charity funders who work in our space and actually and also with some who who are kind of slightly more tangential but I think you know could prove interesting in terms of collaboration so I think collaboration will be key in research as it will in in other areas but also we do really need the government to acknowledge that this investment is critical that is critical to patients but it's also critical to the UK as a as a you know a kind of entity like the UK strength in medical research is something that we're all so proud of we punch so far above our weight compared to the size of country and the number of people in terms of the number of breakthroughs that come out of the UK we've got to protect that and if we just allow the research spend to drop off in line with donations dropping off we'll lose something valuable to individuals and valuable to the country as a whole. So I'm hoping those conversations that are underway will result in something that will make this a bit easier. But I still think making sure we're investing every pound in the best possible way and working collaboratively with others has got, has got to be part of the, of the way through this. Talking a bit more about collaboration then, I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier in terms of there've been so many great examples during the past few months through the crisis of charities collaborating across the sector with government, etc. But that it still feels that collaboration in the charity sector is a little slow or it feels a little mm. hard. Why do you think that is and what can leaders do to address that? So I agree with you. I think it is much slower. I've been really pleased to see that, as you've spotted, that this crisis has accelerated some of that. So, you know, it's been brilliant to work with other cancer charities on One Cancer Voice stuff. It's been brilliant to work with part of the Children and Young People's Cancer Coalition. 
the Blood Cancer Alliance, you know, increasingly working more closely together. Um, but it is slow and it's like there needs what is I think it is what forces people out of their comfort zone enough to say we're going to have to give something up. But the end result of giving something up will be better for the people that we are here to serve. And I think that there are lots of things structurally that make it quite difficult. So I think often you have charity boards. Well, the story I've just told you about a family who set us up, have charity boards who feel that sense of responsibility to keep the organisation going as, you know, their job as a trustee is to hand on the organisation to the next set of trustees in better shape than they inherited it. But inherent in that thinking is that the organisation as it's currently configured has to exist. Whereas, actually, if you were looking at, I don't know, let's take my area because, you know, it's obviously one I know. If you looked at the needs of the 250,000 people with blood cancer, looked at the needs they had that weren't being fulfilled by the state and said, well, the charity sector should be, the third sector should fulfill those needs. What's the best way to align a set of organisations to meet those needs? You would not draw out the, the current situation that we have, you wouldn't draw out hundreds and hundreds of charities of varying different sizes and focus to meet those needs because some bits of that needs those that needs gap is met really well and other bits aren't met at all and sometimes we're wasting money and sometimes we're collaborating well. So um, I think that there are some emotional reasons that make those discussions harder and often they can be at board level but also at chief exec level. And also, I think there are some practical things. So I'm really interested in most chief execs I talk to are really interested in the idea of shared services. You know, kind of what can we do, whether it's shared space or shared, um, you know, finance functions or HR functions or CRM systems or, you know, kind of back office things that where there's a cost just to having those in existence that you probably, if you're a charity of our size, you know, don't use to maximumly. Can we collaborate with other charities to do that? There are, there are things in the system that make that incredibly difficult, like the fact you have to charge fat on things if you want to run a shared service together, which suddenly mean that actually it's not quite as financially beneficial as you thought it was so given that you're giving something up not total control of that service and then the cost gets a bit more expensive it's quite hard to make that happen I hope I really hope that one of the things that comes out of this crisis is dishonesty and vulnerability that we've seen from leaders across the sector extending into honest conversations about where organisations shouldn't be doubling up, shouldn't be duplicating, should be coming together, should genuinely put the needs of service users, beneficiaries, community, whatever the language is that you use, front and centre and ask really difficult questions are we doing our absolute best as a sector, not as an individual organisation, but as a sector, are we doing our best? And I think, you know, the other thing I would say just from a really practical perspective is even where there's, say, you know, two chief execs meet and two boards meet and they think it's a good idea for their charities to come together, even in those circumstances, which feels like, you know, you're really far on in the conversation, 
the time that it takes to work through all the things that you need to work through for those happen are huge. So you're basically writing off your senior team of your organisation for months while you work those things through. And then it might not happen. I, I was reading a report the other day. So I think on mergers, something, can't remember, something like only ever 2% of mergers that start being talked about ever happen. But imagine all the time that's been spent and probably everyone you'll talk to on this podcast has been in those conversations. I, I My instinct is that most people have. And most of the time they've gone into it with really good intention. It hasn't ended up anywhere. And so then in this environment, you say, can we afford for our senior team to go and have those conversations again with X organisation? It's quite tricky, isn't it? Given so many of them fail. So I think there's definitely sector support that could be put in. You almost need like a kind of mergers and partnerships hub that can resource organizations can come and say we think we could work better together can you facilitate that for us and and take some of the heavy lifting away and we will we will do what we need to do to make it happen because also you know most organizations don't have the expertise for this I think that's a great idea and I wonder if somebody will be listening to this podcast and think oh that's a great idea I will set up this resource as a merger and partnerships uh, support or expert think tank, whatever it might be, uh, for charities. I think it would be great. And you know what as well, Divya, I mean, I think it's, I think it would be funded. I think there would be philanthropic funders that would fund that. Because a number of times I talk to donors and they, you know, support our work. They're incredibly passionate about it and probably because they're passionate about blood cancer for a personal reason. And they'll say, oh, but there are so many charities. You know, couldn't couldn't you do more? And I think they, I think that I could, I could probably name four or five funders now that would fund something like that. So I think it would be great. And and you know, let's hope it happens. <laughs> yes, and I think that brings us to another interesting point in terms of the case for charities and civil society. How do we make a stronger case for charities? And what has the pandemic response said about us as a sector? It's really interesting, isn't it? So I think one thing I've been surprised by, to be totally honest, in this situation has been for a group of organisations, the third sector, who are the best campaigners I've ever met. You know, that's what they do. They kind of campaign, they advocate, they fight, they cajole, they get voices heard. Uh, We haven't done that very well as a sector, have we? And there's been great effort, but somehow... We haven't landed how important our sector is and what it will mean, both for the people who work for the sector, but much more importantly, for the needs that won't be met if the sector reduces or in, you know, bits of it collapse. We haven't managed to shift the conversation such that we're seen as a vital part of UK infrastructure. I think. And I think we've seen that in the support measures. So, you know, that well, early on, we were told we could take advantage of the furlough scheme, just like everyone else. Well, we could, but it really didn't help a lot of us very much. You know, if you had a massive influx of demand, we had, in the space of two weeks, the whole incoming demand that we had in the whole of last year. There was so much need suddenly, a real spike in need. It didn't help me to have my you know my team sitting at home not doing anything not allowed to work strictly prohibited from helping us you know, that just didn't work for us and uh, and when I spoke to lots of 
other charities, they're in exactly the same position. They couldn't afford to furlough people, basically, uh, and also couldn't afford not to. So I think at the thinking about how you support this bit of the sector is it wasn't there. So I think the depth of relationships that were held in government and by decision makers and the lack of understanding there w- was really painful and, and obvious to see. And also, I think you've heard it in some of the language as people have talked about charities. I think people are, and maybe as a sector, I think we've contributed to this, this idea that charities are local, voluntary run, small, run on goodwill, all about local people helping other local people and that is a massively important part of our sector and that that lots of those organizations do a huge huge amount but it doesn't speak to the whole of the sector and it certainly doesn't speak to organizations for instance that are funding tens of millions of pounds of medical research every year you know employ staffs of thousands of people you know run meet a need which lots of people think is being met by the state but is actually being met by charities you know perhaps hospices might be the easiest and best example of that where a lot of hospice service is funded through charitable donations and yet I think people think that that's state funded and it's only when you start to see donations and people are faced with dropping off and people are faced with the idea of hospices closing um, that people understand that actually you've got to support that sector differently. So I hope what will happen after this is that we will have a much more wide-ranging, deeper conversation with some of the government departments that we've built up relationships with through the crisis about how do we support a vibrant, strong third sector that is a critical part of having a fair, thriving society. Uh, you know, it's completely the, the sector being strong and the society being strong go hand in glove. And we need to have the, those conversations at, at, at that level. But also, you know, to, to kind of put the focus back on the sector for a minute, we need to be really clear about what we want, what we're advocating for. And we need to come together to to do that. Uh, you know, we're a very well connected sector with great people in it with brilliant ideas brilliant thinking uh, real ability to bring about change and I think what's happened is we've perhaps been a bit too focused on our own organization a bit too but we've been very focused down onto our own organizations and we need to just make sure that our organizations that represent us who are doing a brilliant job like NCVO and Akivo but they're supported they have enough infrastructure and resource we've we've put enough time into them so that the thinking is really clear and that everyone stands ready to do their bit for the sector as a whole as well as their own bit of it. Yes I know the think tank pro bono economics is projecting a 10 billion pound shortfall in unmet demand in terms of income loss as well as services that don't match up to demand uh, in the next year it's interesting according to the uk civil society almanac in 2019 the sector employed 910,000 people now with this huge drop in income I know many charities are looking at job reductions. Some are potentially going to have to shut up shop altogether. And that's going to be a devastating loss for the sector in terms of the workforce. Mm. I know that recently Blood Cancer UK also announced that you are in consultation to reduce jobs and that you're possibly looking at reducing your workforce by about 27%. Tell us 
how has that process been for you and your team so far? I mean, what can you share with us at this point? Uh, it's, it has it has absolutely been the worst period of my working life. Like, there's no question. It's been really devastating and agonizing and gut wrenching and 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 difficult. And and the reason for that is because the organization and the people within it are really, really doing well. <laughs> and by that, I mean, we had a good strategy. We were executing it well. People were working really hard. COVID hit. They worked even harder. They refocused overnight. We realigned priorities. They raised more. You know, they just did everything, everything that they could possibly do and pull together, you, you know, the kind of culture and energy the organization had never, ever, ever been higher. And nothing that we did could offset a seven million drop in income this year, five million next year is our anticipation. I suspect the year after that won't be very much better. I think this is a long haul problem we're in through now, both both because I think the virus isn't going away very quickly, but also think the economic impact of it is we haven't seen it yet. That's coming later and that's gonna have a big impact on giving. So to go to the people who you know, I've worked with for three years who I have hired mostly because they're brilliant and driven and the best people that I would want to work alongside in building a charity like Black Cancer UK. To have to say to those people, we can't carry on at this size and we're going to have to make a number of you redundant, really significant numbers between a quarter and a third of our workforce is awful. And it's awful for people who are staying because there are there are colleagues and they're people who we wanted to carry on working with. But of course, it's going to be hardest on the people who are at risk. We're still in consultation, so we haven't made any firm decisions that will happen in September. But obviously, if your job is at risk and you know it's at risk, it, it is an incredibly difficult time and would be it would be at any point, but something I feel very deeply is, you know, the environment out there isn't easy. It's not just us, you know, in a way, as a leader, I think there's something, there's something which is comforting, which is this isn't a mistake that we made. This is everyone is going through this. So in one sense, you can take some comfort in that, but then that comfort is pretty much whipped away almost immediately because what that means is there aren't easy places for people to go. You know, I, I do believe I would say this, wouldn't I? But we have some of the very best people working at Blood Cancer UK, and I, I have confidence that they'll be valued by a new organisation as they were by me. But I know that it's going to be harder than it would have been if this was last year or in a couple of years' time. So that adds a real weight and sadness even more to what it is that we've got to do but you know through all of this what's your job as CEO of an organization it is to do your very best to protect the mission we our job is to beat blood cancer and part of the way we do that is through having very talented highly motivated high performing people but we don't exist for our staff we exist for people affected by blood cancer and I cannot do anything that would mean that 
that puts the organization at risk of not being able to deliver on that mission. So I can't run through our reserves to a point where we couldn't fund new research or keep people employed to a point that would put the future of the organization at jeopardy or even, you know, if you even run us to a point where as we emerge from this and it becomes clear how we will raise new money, like what will be the new ways that people will give? Because they will come. I, I know they will. When that's clear, I have to be able to invest in them. I have to have enough there that we can back the things that are working. And so that's why we've taken the decision that we've taken to put this proposal in place. And, you know, I ask myself every day, am I confident it's the right thing? And the honest answer is, I'm confident it's the best thing that I can see now with all the information that I have about what I think the future will be. But I am, if I'm really honest, agonized by the idea that in six months or a year, we'll look back and maybe two years even we'll know if it was the right thing. Yeah, you know, one of the things that sort of keeps me awake is what if, what if I'm cutting too early? Other people haven't done this yet. What what if actually there is an incredibly quick bounce back and then all these amazing people have gone from the organization and as you said, maybe gone from the sector and I can't bring them back in. Would I then say that that was obviously the wrong decision? I, you know, I would. But but I just don't see that happening and none of the data that I'm looking at tells me that we will bounce back in the next few months. I think it will be the next few years. So it is a very, it's a very, very difficult time. And all I can do and all I hope I'm doing in the in talking to the team about it and taking leading us through this process is just being really transparent about how and why I'm making those proposals be available for people to talk to me, to express their sadness, their upset, their disagreement, you know, whatever it is that people would reasonably be feeling in this situation, make sure that I'm around or, you know, to hear that and people have lots of ways to talk and feed in. And if I've got some of this wrong, you know, I'll change it. You know, that is what this period is about. There may well be things that I haven't seen or I haven't anticipated but the reality is we couldn't carry on being an organization of whatever we were 125 people which that would not be the right thing I know that I know we can't afford that so one way or another we've got to reduce our size and keep our impact high and that's what that's what I'm gonna try and do I hear what you're saying in terms of having a laser focus on the mission for you as an organization is what is really going to take you forward into into the future yeah is there anything Gemma that you think charity leaders can do to create paths back to the sector for these people who are potentially going to leave in the short term yeah I th so it's a conversation that I've started with a, a group of other cancer charity chief execs to say firstly how can we support people better who lots of people or certainly that group of organizations that I was talking to I think it's on the cards for all of them if, uh, many of them have announced this already what can we do that supports those people what can we do that creates paths back how can we retain as much talent as possible so I think that that's what we've got to do so for us that involves making sure those people have ongoing support 
post their time with us finishing in terms of reskilling, CV development, looking at different paths and keeping in touch with people. So we already have a kind of Blood Camps UK alumni programme, but, you know, you don't ever get to leave. We still keep in touch about things. But we will we will absolutely be doing that. So I really hope, you know, we'll, we'll be in a position where we can start rehiring people again in the not too distant future. And I hope that I'll be able to get some of the brilliant people that I will inevitably end up losing back. But if it wasn't, if they couldn't come back to us, then I would feel almost as good as if they came back to one of the other brilliant charities in the sector, because it's such a, a such a sad loss. Indeed. So, Gemma, tell us a bit more about your own personal situation. I mean, you have already told us how this has been the most difficult period. What have you learned in terms of your leadership? I'm always curious as a chief executive how you balance competing priorities of how much time do you spend looking at the external environment versus focusing internally and charting a course forward for your organization. How how do you deal with that? Yeah, I'm always interested in that too. And I think in your time leading an organization, it changes, doesn't it? When I first joined Black Country, I was very internally focused. There was a lot of stuff I needed to sort out internally. And I think my first year was very, very focused on that. And then it started to be much more about external collaboration, funding conversations, partnership, those sorts of things. In this period, we haven't had the luxury of being able to focus more on one than the other because they both just suddenly hit the kind of huge priorities. I'm so grateful that I was as far through my tenure at Black Country UK as I was. I mean, I hadn't, you know, I'll be there three years in a couple of months, but I was through long enough that I had great relationships with a brilliant senior team who were working together well. And that meant that a lot of that internal stuff they were able to lead. And so that did mean that I could say, for instance, we were lucky in receiving one of the very small number of government grants that went to charities. And and that that happened really because I was able to focus externally you know like spot that coming spend up give it a lot of time of my time to make that happen and there have been a few things like that in this crisis where it's just taken it's had to be the CEO that did it there wasn't any other there wasn't any other way of doing it so how do you balance time I, I think I, the honest truth is I haven't done that very well in this crisis. You know, like I'm speaking to you after having had some time off last week. I think if we've been speaking before that, you know, you might have seen someone who was pretty frazzled and probably not giving enough attention to the things that I tell my team to give attention to all the time about how you need to kind of stay resilient and strong and understand enough about your own well-being to be able to give enough to the organization I think that's been I thought I had really good things in place for that but this this pandemic has really challenged that on every level and you know not least that it's not just that work got really hard but actually having two kids got really hard two school those kids got really hard too and and you know so there was a kind of domestic work interface and I think as well the other bit is emotionally it's been very hard so obviously if you work in a blood cancer charity all the time you face some stories of people in the most incredibly difficult situation 
and that's part of your job and that's part of what motivates you. But for the last few months, those the number and volume and the acuteness of those stories and the distress in those stories and those conversations has been very overwhelming. And, I, you know, not just for me and particularly for people in my team who are on the front line all the time, it's been very difficult. So we've had to really look at emotional support. So so that's to say it's been difficult. What have I learned? I've learned so much. I just need to make sure that I've got enough time to process what I have learned. <laughs> I think you always do probably in a crisis, don't you? It's horrible to be in it. And then you look back and you think, oh, I've learned a lot. One thing I've been really pleased about, and we touched on it earlier, is my style as a leader has always been, you know, if you're criticising it, you would say, I overshare and, and, you know, I'm too, I just talk from the heart too much. You know, I'm not kind of managed enough about what the messages are and what I, it just, I find that quite difficult to do. I kind of very naturally just find it very difficult to filter really. I just kind of tell people how I'm feeling about things. Actually, you know, in this situation, I think that's been helpful. You know, I've told, I've told the team about times where I've, got up in the morning and haven't been sure if I can face another day or where as has happened on several occasions you know I've I've broken down because of something that's happened in a conversation and and actually I think that's helped us as a team because it's like we're all in this you know that, that it's difficult for us in different ways at different times but I feel that you know, that voice of honesty, being able to be honest and authentic and consistent, like I'm here, I will be here tomorrow when you come in, I am here, you will still be able to talk to me, I will still be being honest with you about where we are, I can't make this better, I can't make it go away, I wish I could, I can't, but I will not hide things from you, you will know where we are at, and you will know what is coming, and you will know what my thinking is about what we're going to do, and if you've got a better idea, you will have all the opportunities to tell me about it. And if you think I'm getting it wrong, you will be able to tell me that too. And and actually that style, that way of leading an organisation, I think has really come into its own in this crisis. I think it is at times of crisis that that has that that has worked for us. So I think I've learned to be more confident in that. I think for a lot of my career, I've been trying to manage that bit of me out. You know, I've always thought I need to be different. I need to be, oh, no, you know, I've always sort of looked at other people think, oh, yeah, they're probably thinking, you know, they've managed to control that message better or they haven't. They've sort of played their cards more strategically or more cleverly than I have. And actually, I think I've become a lot more confident and comfortable in who I am as a leader through this and that 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 I hope will be one of the positive things that stays with me personally and I you know the other thing is I think I've become a lot more confident in taking decisions without all the data so one of my challenges when I came into the organization was we didn't have good data on anything and I was used to you know my mantra would have been what's the data thing us don't want to go on your gut I want to know what I want to know what the evidence tells us about this and then we'll make a decision and I spent a lot of time when I joined the organization really trying to increase that rigor and I'm glad I 
did, you know, that's helped us to a certain extent, but suddenly we're in a, a situation where, you know, you tell me what happens to this income line in a global disease pandemic. It wasn't even on my risk register. You know, all those systems and things don't have counted for not very much. And what's counted for a lot has been having a team of good people who know what they're doing, who are clear about what the organisation does and therefore how they how they need to respond to what's happening and then trusting them to get on with it. And I think that I've that I've learned how to do that much better over the last few weeks. How long has it been? <laughs> weeks and months than before. And that will be something that I won't want to lose, albeit I will feel much better when we're in a position where I can look back and say, oh, well, I understand this. This is what's happening. Now we'll do this <laughs> if we ever get there. Indeed. So looking back from where you are now, Gemma, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of your very first CEO role? I think it would be to trust your instincts a bit more. So I, particularly coming into this role, which was you say is my first chief exec role, this role, and I was so aware, and also been out of the charity sector for 13 years. I've been in higher education in the NHS. So, so I came, I had a lot of, I had instincts about things, but I had a lot of voices in my head saying, wait, you don't know enough yet. You don't know enough about the sector yet. You don't know enough about the organisation yet. You need to just go slow and hear some more voices. And I think... That's not to say that I think if I did it again, I would come in and say, bam, bam, bam. I, I don't think I would. But I think there were some key decisions that I would accelerate and that I would, you know, the other thing that's very difficult as a new CEO is establishing a relationship with your board quickly because, you know, I've got a brilliant board now and work really effectively with them. And I'm very grateful for that, particularly for the chair who I work very well with. So managing through this period it, with them when I knew I had their trust and I knew them and I knew what they needed and I knew what I needed from them, that's very different when you arrive as a new CEO into an organisation and you don't quite know how they're going to be judging you as a chief exec. And I think as a first chief exec, or at least maybe I shouldn't generalise, speak for me, you really want to be clear very quickly about what good looks like for those people. And if you're not, you can spend quite a lot of time trying to second guess it and waste time doing that. So I was I had a slight difficult situation in that the chair that recruited me wasn't there by the time I started. And there was a temporary chair. And then later on, we hired the permanent chair who we've got now. And so through that being new and having that period of uncertainty and therefore not being totally clear about how they were going to judge success and whether or not that was going to be the same way that I would judge success for the organisation slowed us down a bit, I think. And I think I was very... So one thing I got right was to focus on culture early. I, you know, I came in saying we've got to get the culture right and it isn't right at the moment and I, that I wasn't a genius. Everyone in the organisation was telling me it wasn't right, so I just listened to that. But uh, And it was right to focus on that. But I think at the same time... I could have more quickly plotted a course to right, and also this is this is some of the things we're going to sort out practically at the same time. So I think I might have I might have accelerated some of that. I think, and definitely, you know, this I've learned so much in this job. Never mind what we've just talked about in the last three months. 
of course, I've learned so much that I look back and I think, oh, if I know, if I knew what I knew now, I could go back and do it all in half the time. But no doubt, if I go on to do another job in the future, then we have the same conversation again. Presumably the same thing will happen again. And if it doesn't, then that means I stop learning. And that would be, I mean, the job was boring and that would be a mistake. No, I'm very lucky to have this job. It's been, it's been a huge learning. It's given me so much in terms of you know, me personally, as well as, as well as professionally. And we're going to leave it there for part one of my conversation with Gemma Peters. In part two, we explore what diversity, equity and inclusion really means for the charity sector. Gemma shares the responsibility she feels being a white leader with an all-white board, executive team and with predominantly white scientific researchers. We look at specific initiatives that Blood Cancer UK are pursuing to address this and how, as a sector, we can look to disestablish racist structures. Part two is available immediately, so please download the episode to listen now. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. It will only take a few seconds and reviews really help make a difference to increase the visibility of the podcast and help spread the word. Visit thecharityceo.com website for full show details and to submit questions for future guests. Thank you for listening.